This is History 2311, Week 8B, The Affluent Society. Kitchen debate between Nikita Khrushchev and Richard Nixon in 1959, it's kind of a textbook, history textbook cliche, but it has become a cliche because it vividly captures so much about America and the Cold War at this moment. In the summer of 1959, in an effort to improve Cold War relations between the two countries, the United States and the Soviet Union each held national exhibitions in the other country to allow citizens of each place to see a glimpse of what life was like in the other country. So the Soviets put on an exhibition in New York in June 1959 that celebrated Soviet science, factory machinery, rockets, and so on, all the things they were proud of. And in July, the next month, the United States put on a similar exhibit in Moscow. And the US exhibit showcased consumer goods and leisure equipment. There was a movie theater, there were stereo sets, there were something like 22 different cars. The vice president, Richard Nixon, uh, accompanied the exhibition to Moscow. And as he and Nikita Khrushchev, who was the Soviet premier, toured the exhibit, they got into a debate about the merits of communism versus capitalism. And the debate took place uh, in a model kitchen or viewing a model kitchen, which you can see here, it was designed to show off all the goods and appliances of a modern American kitchen. There's actually some good video of the press conference afterwards. I may post that on OWL. If you watch it, one thing it may do is give you a little bit more respect for Richard Nixon uh, as he has to contend with Khrushchev in this conference. The two men argued about whether women were better off in the United States under capitalism or the Soviet Union under communism. Khrushchev said that American women were oppressed and Nixon showed him you know, fancy washing machines and even a, a floor sweeping robot. Nixon said that the superiority of the American way of life was embodied not in ideology or in America's military might, but in the comforts of the suburban home specifically the things that made life easier for women. Now, Khrushchev was not about to admit American superiority in any sphere, and he was dismissive of all the machines and gadgets. He said, what's next, a machine that puts food in your mouth and shoves it down your throat? But in fact, the Soviets were clearly impressed. And Khrushchev rather rashly predicted that within seven years, his country would surpass the United States in the production of consumer goods. And that prediction in 1959 was woefully wrong. 
And I would argue that by accepting Nixon's premise and, and casting the Cold War as a competition over material abundance and consumer goods, Khrushchev really lost the debate because a contest over who could produce more consumer goods was not a fight that the United States in 1959 was about to lose. The decades after the Second World War have been called the golden age of American capitalism. Certainly they were the zenith in relative terms of American power and prosperity. And American culture remains powerfully nostalgic for this era, the late 1940s, the 1950s, the early 1960s, even as it passes out of living memory. It's not just the United States that is nostalgic for this era. In France, they call the years from about 1945 to 1975, les 30 glorieuses, the glorious 30, referring to the economic prosperity and growth of this period. In 1958, the year before the Kitchen debate, the celebrated economist and public intellectual, Canadian-born economist, John Kenneth Galbraith, published a book calling America the Affluent Society. Now, Galbraith's book wasn't really a celebration of American society. It was actually a warning about the underlying structure of an economy dedicated to endlessly increasing the consumption of consumer goods. I want to talk today about some of the good and the bad aspects of America's post-war prosperity, to be critical of the society's inequalities, but also to give credit where credit is due. Between 1946 and 1960, the gross national product of the United States more than doubled. You can see the upward march of the Dow Jones from 1945 onward on this graph. Of course, we know the Dow doesn't tell the whole story, but it does show that American corporations were doing well in these years. But what made the glorious 30 is not just that these were good years for corporations. A big part of the reason that people remain so nostalgic for this era is that this was a period in which the benefits of that productivity and prosperity flowed to ordinary citizens. These were not just years of high GDP, but also years of high wages, high consumption, progressive taxation, and increasingly generous social benefits. Between 1946 and 1960, the percentage of Americans living in poverty was cut in half. And in 1956, for the first time in US history, white collar workers, that is middle-class workers, outnumbered blue collar factory and manual workers. By 1960, an estimated 60% of Americans enjoyed what the government defined as a middle-class standard of living. In 1952, the historian Frederick Lewis Allen set out to write a history of the first half of the 20th century. And Allen looked at all the changes between 1900 and 1950. Technological changes like airplanes, automobiles, the atomic bomb, geopolitical changes like the two world wars and America's rise to become a global superpower. But when he looked at all these changes, what did he cite as the 20th century or the first half of the 20th century's single most important change, economic equality. Of all the contrasts, Allen said, between American life in 1900 and half a century later, the most significant is shrinking the distance between rich and poor. And I've showed you this graph before. This is a graph of inequality in the United States. And we talked about the early 20th century in the 1920s when inequality, the distance between rich and poor was very high. Our subject today is the years when inequality or the distance between rich and poor was comparatively low, the lowest it's ever been. 
the divide between rich and poor, the divide between the working class and the middle class and the wealthy, those distances were never shorter than in the middle of the 20th century. I'll try to give you an example. In 1960, a starting lawyer on Wall Street made about $2,000 more per year than a starting teacher in the New York City public schools. Today, a starting Wall Street lawyer makes like $115,000 more per year than a starting teacher. The US economy of the mid 20th century was remarkable, not just for its productivity, but for how the benefits of that prosperity were distributed. So I'd like to try and trace some of the effects of that prosperity, of that affluence, starting with the rise of the new suburbia, looking at changes in the shape of the American family, looking at the structures and policies that aim to share that wealth, and finally looking at the one glaring exception to this affluence, which was the racial divide between white and black Americans. At the start of World War II, Franklin Roosevelt had promised freedom from want as one of the four freedoms that Americans were fighting for in the United States and around the world. But in a consumer society, we are never free from want. We are never free from wanting things. We might be free from needing things, but freedom from want, want is what drives the consumer economy. Our economy keeps growing because our ability to consume is endless, said Jack Strauss, the chairman of Macy's department store. The big engines of economic growth in the 1950s included spending on large consumer goods like automobiles, speaking of big engines, also appliances like the kitchen appliances that Nixon showed off to Khrushchev in the kitchen debate, also television sets, brand new appliance, media appliance in these years. But probably the most important driver of economic growth in the post-war years was housing. The number of houses in America doubled in the 1950s. There had been a housing shortage in the depression years and the war years. People couldn't afford new homes. There was not a lot of new construction. People were reluctant to loan or borrow large sums of money. But after the war, there was a massive expansion of housing construction and purchasing driven by both the public and the private sector. In 1944, Congress passed the Servicemen's Readjustment Act, which is commonly known as the GI Bill. And the GI Bill provided a range of benefits for returning World War II soldiers or veterans. The GI Bill paid for returning soldiers to go to university or college, which millions of veterans did. It also created low interest loans which veterans could use to buy farms or start businesses. And crucially, it backed low interest mortgages for veterans to buy new homes. The way the loans were set up, they actually privileged new housing construction over buying existing old homes. And so one effect of the GI Bill was a huge influx of government money into housing. At the same time, private developers pioneered mass building techniques, building whole subdivisions at once that made homes far more affordable than they had been in the past. And they built sprawling neighborhoods of single family homes on the outskirts of American cities, the new American suburbs. In 1950, an XGI could buy a modest suburban home with no down payment and a $56 a month mortgage. It was actually easier than buying a car in some cases. And so working class men and women, working class families were able suddenly to purchase their own homes in unprecedented numbers. This is a picture of Levittown, a very famous real estate development on Long Island outside New York. 
the builders of Levittown, William and Alfred Levitt, during the war, the Levitt brothers built low cost barracks for the Navy. After the war, they decided to apply the same assembly line methods they had developed during the war to building residential housing. In 1947, they bought something like 1,200 acres of potato fields on Long Island and started building rapidly 30 or 40 houses a day. By 1951, they had built 17,000 new homes and sold every one. They soon built a second Levittown in Pennsylvania and similar developments by other builders sprang up all over the country. In 1930, only 30% of Americans owned their own home. In 1960, more than 60% did. Now, suburbia, and especially the rapidly built, very standardized suburbs of the 1950s, often gets a bad rap. New York sophisticates were very scornful of Levittown, uh, of the mass-produced identical houses of the neighborhood. It seemed to symbolize a kind of vapid conformity that people were very anxious about in these years. And, you know, you may be sympathetic to that critique, especially those of you who grew up in the suburbs, but notice the snobbery built into that critique. Yes, the homes in Levittown were all very simple, and yes, they were all identical, but that's what made them affordable. Working class families who had traditionally always been tenants, been renters, were suddenly able to become homeowners. They were able to have yards and green spaces. They suddenly had access to a kind of middle-class lifestyle that many of their parents had never had. This photo here is an open house at the opening of Levittown in 1950. And as you can see, the lines were around the block. So who was living in all these new houses? Nixon's remarks in the kitchen debate made it clear that Americans in the 1950s put great symbolic importance on the suburban home and the American family. What were American families like in this era? It's not actually true. A lot of people think that women left the labor force, that all American women had war jobs during the war. They were all Rosie the Riveter. And then they all went back into the home and became housewives after the war's end. I know that's the mythology. We have this collective memory of the 1950s as an age of domesticity where all women were housewives. I mean, it is true that after 1945, many women lost the industrial jobs they had performed during the war. Many of them went back to the lower salary, non-union jobs that have traditionally been women's work, clerical jobs, sales jobs, service jobs. But it's not actually true that all women were housewives in the 1950s. The impression that women all went back to the home really comes from the immense cultural weight attached to families in this era. The family was hailed everywhere as the most basic institution in society. Americans told pollsters, they told their children, they told each other that home and family were the wellsprings of happiness and self-esteem. And the shape of the American family did change. More Americans got married, they also got married younger. This graph shows the median age at which American men and women got married. And you could see that between 1940 and 1970, the marriage age got much younger. The, the median marriage age dropped to about 22 years old for men and 20 years old for women. The graph actually kind of has the same shape as the inequality graph I showed you a second ago. And that's really not a coincidence. So Americans were getting married younger and they were also having more children. This is the US birth rate from 1909 to 2009. And what we see is a long, a century long decline in birth rates interrupted by a huge bulge in the middle of the century, which we call the baby boom. 
I think it's really interesting that the baby boom actually represents an aberration against long-term trends. In other words, when people today talk about family values or look back nostalgically to the traditional family of old, you know, they often invoke images of the 1950s. But what this shows is that the traditional family of the 1950s, or an even more telling term, the nuclear family of the 1950s, was not necessarily that traditional. The most common family structure in the 19th and early 20th century was actually the extended family. So that's several generations, branches of family sharing one home. And this was especially true during the housing shortages of the depression and the war years. But in the 1950s, the mark of middle-class success, the mark of arrival into the middle-class came to be the nuclear family, the insular family, which owned its own home. That is a family with a father and a mother and a couple of kids, but not living with grandparents, not living with in-laws, not living with uncles or cousins. And this was not all that traditional. It's not the way that most people lived before 1950. For a lot of families, especially working class families moving up into the middle class, this was all brand new. And experts and popular magazines urged young families to adopt a modern stance by striking out on their own as soon as they could afford to do so. These kinds of images of the American nuclear family, of course, there's, there's millions of these images. They're very familiar to us. What I want you to notice about these two particular images, besides the fact that the family on the left just bought a house for $15,000, is how young they are. I mean, look past the hairstyles and the makeup styles. These are these kids are your age. And by, by kids, I mean the parents. These, these parents are your age. The average marriage age, as I said, was 20, 21, 22 years old. And moving out to the suburbs was a sort of great adventure for young Americans, away from the close scrutiny of the elder generation, away from the scrutiny of their parents. This issue of Life magazine is titled The American and His Economy. A lot of the nostalgia that our culture locates in the 1950s has to do with this uh, allegedly traditional family. And that's kind of essentially conservative nostalgia for a certain family structure. But there are reasons for progressives or people on the political left to have some nostalgia for this era also. In retrospect, something that was remarkable about it was not just the prosperity of the affluent society, but also how widely it was shared. And of course, there are important limits to that, which I'm going to get to, but I still want to acknowledge real ways in which the economy of the 1950s and 60s differed from our own. This is Charles Wilson. He was the CEO of General Motors uh, in the 1940s and 50s, and he became Eisenhower's Secretary of Defense in 1953. When Wilson was being approved as Secretary of Defense, he was asked if he would have any conflicts of interest. In other words, he was asked if he, as Secretary of Defense, could or would make decisions that might be adverse to the interests of General Motors. Wilson's answer is often misquoted or misremembered as, what's good for General Motors is good for the country. What he actually said is, what is good for our country is good for General Motors and vice versa. But either way you quote it, the quote is seen as symbolizing the way business interests and American interests were aligned in the 1950s in the Eisenhower administration and in general. Now, of course, a chummy relationship between business and the White House was nothing new. I, I made pretty much exactly the same point when I was talking to you about the 1920s. But if we look at General Motors in particular, if we look at Wilson and General Motors in the 1940s and 50s, 
this story is a little more nuanced. It's not identical to the story I told about the 1920s. For one thing, remember that General Motors, along with Ford, along with Chrysler, played a huge part in winning the Second World War. In World War II, Wilson directed General Motors' huge defense production effort. All those tanks and trucks that landed at D-Day that, that astonished the Soviets, who made those if not Ford and GM? And that's why Eisenhower, who was, of course, the general who commanded the troops at D-Day, that's why Eisenhower chose Wilson to be his secretary of defense. So when Wilson said, what's good for the country is good for GM, he was saying that America's great strength is its industrial strength. We might also ask, how did Wilson run General Motors? In 1945, uh, 175,000 GM workers represented by the United Auto Workers Union had gone on strike. And it was a bitter six-month strike that both sides felt had achieved nothing. There was a huge demand for automobiles after the war. And with GM plants closed in 1945, the company lost millions. When it came time in 1948 to negotiate a new agreement, Wilson was determined to avoid another strike. Demand for automobiles was booming, and Wilson wanted all his plants running at full capacity. So he offered the auto workers union a relatively generous proposal. He raised hourly wages a bit. He also introduced a new cost of living adjustment that tied wages to inflation. This deal was sweet enough to actually raise eyebrows among other CEOs. They wondered, oh, has Wilson gone soft? But in 1949, GM registered a larger annual profit than any corporation in US history to that date. And Wilson said, we profit when our workers are happy. Then in 1950, GM and the UAW negotiated an even more generous contract in exchange for a five-year contract, a longer contract, which guaranteed five years of labor peace. GM gave its workers monthly pensions, picked up half the bill for new health insurance benefit, and it sweetened that cost of living adjustment. It turned it into a productivity adjustment so that the more productive GM plants were, the more workers got paid. Fortune magazine called this deal the Treaty of Detroit. It was probably the biggest economic gain won by any of the big unions, but GM won too, and it defied expectations by posting record profits and increasing productivity all through the 1950s and 60s. And this famous deal with GM was followed by similar deals at Chrysler and Ford, along with deals in other big industries that created thousands of steady, secure, high-paying, unionized factory jobs. The average automobile worker's wages almost doubled between 1947 and 1960. And it's those wages and those kind of high-paying factory union jobs that really pulled so many members of the working class up into the middle class. That's a big part of why income inequality declined in these years. It's hard to believe today, if you look at places like Detroit today, you know, they're in a very sad state. But in the 1950s and 60s, the automobile industry cities, Detroit, Flint, Michigan, Toledo, Ohio, these were among the most prosperous cities in the nation with the highest median incomes, the highest percentage of owner-occupied homes. So if these were good years for auto workers, good years for the working class, how were they for the capitalists and executives up in the boardroom? Well, Charles Wilson was doing just fine. In 1950, he reported $586,000 in income, but he paid about $430,000 of that in taxes for a take-home pay of about $150,000. 
if you adjust that for inflation, that's about one and a half million dollars today. Put another way, Wilson was making about 26 times as much as his average employee. Now, the CEO of General Motors today is Mary Barra. She's actually the first woman CEO of GM. And in 2019, Barra was paid $22 million, which is 280 times as much as her median employee. And there you see again, the yawning gulf between rich and poor in our own era. Of course, General Motors is a company where the workers are still unionized. Doug McMillan, who's the CEO of Walmart, he also makes about $22 million a year, but the median non-union Walmart worker only makes about 19,000 a year, which means that the CEO earns almost 1,200 times more than his median employee. The other big difference between 1950 and today is that Wilson was paying about 75% of his income in taxes. In 1950, the top income tax bracket, in other words, the amount of tax you would pay on your income above $400,000 was 84%. And when Eisenhower became president in 1953, he actually increased that top rate to 91%. Doesn't mean you paid 91% of all your income, but you do pay, you would pay 91% of your income above that $400,000 level. People think of the 1950s as a conservative time, and in some ways it was, but in terms of taxes, in terms of the welfare state, it was much more radical and progressive than today. 91% tax rate, that's unheard of today. Eisenhower was an interesting president. He was a Republican, but he was a very middle-of-the-road Republican. He, he could pretty easily have been a New Deal Democrat. And as the first Republican president after the New Deal, he left many New Deal programs in place, Social Security, unemployment insurance, labor laws. He even proposed some of his own, including a national health care plan that looked a lot like what Obama passed in 2010, Eisenhower proposed something like this back in 1954, but it was defeated in Congress. You're probably wondering if Americans didn't complain about these high taxes. And yes, there absolutely were wealthy Americans who grumbled about these high tax rates. But the government, the Republican government, supported them. In 1960, Eisenhower gave a speech to automobile industry executives in Detroit, and he praised them for leading the way for building a new kind of enterprise, what he called a socially conscious type of private enterprise that strives to benefit all the people. Ike said, in other countries, you have a few fabulously wealthy people and everyone else is poor, but that those countries are ripe for revolution. Eisenhower said America has taken a different path that the United States and not the Soviet Union had achieved Karl Marx's dream of a classless society. Now, the thinking among economists, free market economists today, is that the economy would collapse with tax rates like this. But it didn't collapse. I mean, these were the most prosperous decades of the American century. This graphic from the Office of Price Administration in 1946 is trying to make the case that redistributing wealth in a more equal way doesn't have to take away from anyone. So the working class, the guy at the top with the lowest third of the national income gets a bigger piece of a bigger pie. The middle class guy, the guy in the middle gets a bigger piece of a bigger pie. And by the end, he's got a top hat just like he's a capitalist himself. And then even the wealthiest Americans down at the bottom of the graph, they have a smaller slice, but it, as the chart says, a thinner slice from bigger pie still means more pie. The prosperity of these years, the growing pie, made it possible to contemplate redistribution of wealth. 
Of course, there is one big exception to the prosperity of the 1950s and 60s and the march from the working class into the middle class. And that was the stark divide between white Americans and black. The march to suburbia, the march into the middle class was overwhelmingly a white phenomenon. At a time when the gap between rich and poor whites was shrinking, the gap between white and black incomes was only growing. And a lot of the things that were helping white families, the high paying union jobs, the suburban homes, the government programs that were giving workers a leg up were far less available to black families. Sometimes this was due to direct overt conscious bigotry, but there was also a whole lot of structural discrimination, institutional discrimination that worked in more subtle, but possibly just as devastating ways. I talked a few weeks ago about social security, one of the most significant beloved achievements of the New Deal. You pay into it throughout your career, and then when you retire, you're guaranteed a certain income for the rest of your life. But as I said, when the Roosevelt administration created social security in 1935, in order to get the votes of conservative Democrats, they had to specifically exclude agricultural workers and domestic servants which meant that disproportionately whites got social security and, and a large share of African-Americans didn't. Old age pensions are really an important building block of financial security, not just because of the security they give senior citizens, but they also mean that older folks can hang on to their life savings and pass on inheritance to their children, you know, or put their kids through college or help them with buying their first home, whatever. Without social security, older folks become burdens on their children. Instead of giving them a start in life, they hold them back. Housing is also a big part of this story. For millions of white Americans, the path from the working class to the middle class led from the city into the suburbs. But for African Americans, that path was often blocked. Many developers like the Levitts, the, the fellows who built Levittown, refused to sell homes to African Americans. They said, whites don't want to live next to blacks and the mere presence of African-Americans, it was feared, would lower property values. So in these early years, if you bought a home in Levittown or a similar suburb, it would be right in your lease that you could not sell or rent your home to those who were not white. Now the Supreme Court ruled in 1948 that racial covenants like this were unconstitutional but the Levitts fought the ruling and continued to refuse to sell to non-whites. It took until 1968 to criminalize such covenants. This painting by Norman Rockwell, I think was actually in reference to that court decision. And when African-Americans did move into these neighborhoods, they faced hostility and outright violence. Their homes could be picketed, vandalized, pelted with rocks. Here's a crowd protesting outside the home of William and Daisy Myers, the first black residents of Levittown, of the Pennsylvania Levittown in 1957. The racial divide that kept suburbia white was exacerbated by the way government housing policy worked. The growth of suburbia was really enabled, as I said before, by federal housing programs like the GI Bill that insured loans for new home buyers. But part of how this program worked is that the government drew up maps of basically every city in the country and classified every neighborhood as most desirable, less desirable, declining or risky. And then the best loans, the best mortgages were only available for buying homes in desirable neighborhoods. These categories were not explicitly racial, 
but the desirable neighborhoods were very often the white only neighborhoods. And the most risky neighborhoods were of course, often the minority neighborhoods. This practice was called redlining. I guess after the red lines they draw on the map. And while this was not the intent, the effect of redlining was very often to subsidize white home ownership while refusing aid to African-Americans. And the effect of all this was to leave African-Americans out of the suburban real estate boom, which basically left them out of the great rising tide of post-war prosperity, probably the biggest mass opportunity for wealth accumulation in American history. To this day, black families, regardless of their income, have significantly less wealth than white families. And the reason for that is that so much wealth is generated by home ownership, by owning real estate. Here's a quote from the writer Ta-Nehisi Coates saying, if you were trying to advantage or disadvantage one group of Americans, you could scarcely choose a more graceful method than housing discrimination. Today, black families that make $100,000 a year live in the same kinds of neighborhoods as white families making $30,000 per year. Because even as their income rises, their wealth is far more precarious. They don't have the same safety net built up as, as white Americans. In 1960, African-Americans represented less than 3% of the population of Chicago's suburbs. Now, there has been gradual change. Certainly there are African-Americans living in suburbs, but as late as the 1990s, nearly 90% of suburban whites lived in communities that were 99% white. But we'll talk next week about the struggle of African-Americans to write that balance, about all the ways they succeeded and also some of the battles not yet won. Thanks very much for watching. Well, I'm